Philippians chapter number two. And we're in our series on surrender. And today I want to preach a message I believe the Lord has really given me through my prayer time and, and working it in my life. And I need it. I need this message today. And I think that you'll feel the same way. I hope that you do. And so Philippians chapter number two, we're in verse number one. Philippians chapter number two, if you're there, say amen. amen. All right, if you don't have a Bible, the, the words are on the screen behind me there, and you could read along. Philippians chapter two, verse one tells us, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, that word consolation means a comforting. If there's any comforting in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any bowels and mercies, if there be any of these things, Paul says, fulfill ye my joy, that ye, talking about talking to the church, that ye be like-minded and having the same love, being in one accord and of one mind. He goes on to kind of further explain what he means. So let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look at the person next to you and say, you're better than me. Well, you didn't like doing that, did you? All right. <laughs> But that's what he's talking about. Let each other esteem each other better than themselves. Look at the person next to you and say, can I borrow $10? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Then he goes on. He says, look not every man on his own things, but on the things of others. Be watching out for one another. And then he says this, and I love this part, verses 5, 6, down through verse 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now notice the colon there. What he just said, what we're going to read next, is what the mind is of Christ. So let this mind, which was, but this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, colon, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I just want to pause for a doctrinal thing. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And there was not anything made that was made. Without him was not anything made that was made. He is God. Jesus is the creator God. He said, it says in Genesis chapter number one, let us make man, let us make man in our image. There's plural words there talking about the Trinity right there in Genesis chapter number one. And so Jesus did not have a problem being equal with God. These three, these three, Jesus, the Father, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Sorry, that was free. Verse number seven but made himself of no reputation. So here we have God in the flesh, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, being found in fashion as a man. Let this mind be in you. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, not just any death, but the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. He is worthy that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, earth, and under the earth. Would you read verse 11 with me? Ready, begin. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We talked about two weeks ago when we started the series on surrender. Victory begins with surrender. We saw that Abraham offered Isaac. This began, his, this began victory in his life. God blessed and blessed Abraham for his faith decision. His generations after him would be blessed. Victory began with surrender, but it was also sustained through sacrifice. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 12 to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is our 
reasonable service. When we lay our lives on the altar, we say, okay, God, everything I have is yours. Our victory is sustained that way. It begins with surrender, with bowing on our knees and saying, okay, God, I'm yours. It's sustained through sacrifice. When we present our bodies, a living sacrifice, we become a display for Christ. Remember the mannequins? We become a display for Christ. Our lives become a display of his mercy and grace. And so there is victory in surrender. There is victory in sacrifice. The question is this today in my mind. Why is it if, if we see victory in surrender and we see victory in sacrifice, why is it that we struggle so much with surrender? And I tell you, today I struggle with it just as much as you do. I might be surrendered today, but Brother Didisho, tomorrow I'll struggle with surrender. I might be, I might be good with, with surrender this month, but next month I'll struggle with surrender. Why is it that we struggle with surrender? Surrender is such a powerful, eternity-shattering force. Surrender has enemies. And the message today is the enemy of surrender, the greatest enemy of surrender. And the greatest enemy of surrender is this, pride, pride. So the message today is really about pride. There can be no doubt that pride is the most spiritually destructive force in our lives. Today, if pride is so destructive and so disruptive to our surrender, would we not do anything that we can to crush our pride? So here's the challenge for you today and for me today. If the greatest enemy of my surrender is my own pride, would I not want to see that enemy defeated in my life? How many would say, I would like to see pride defeated in my life? Father, I pray that you'd help us with this message. Lord, I pray that our cell phones would be silent. I pray, Lord, that our phones would be put away. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be tuned in to you. Lord, my words will fall on the carpet today, never to be heard probably again. But God, I pray that the Holy Spirit's work today would be remembered, that the Holy Spirit would crush through the stony heart today, get through that, that thick layer of pride that we all have, and get to that fleshy part. And change us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I heard the story about a CEO was driving with his wife, and they were going up through the mountains of Oregon, just having a nice drive. And he was a very successful 500, Fortune 500 company, very, very nice dress and very nice car, you know, the BMW 745, whatever. They were just, it was, they were, it was nice. And he was successful. They're driving along and he's stopped to get gas. Brother Soto, you know this in Oregon, when you stop to get gas, uh, they pump your gas for you. And so they stopped to get gas there. And, uh, and this is a true story. It's in somebody's book, actually. And so he stopped to get gas there. And he said, I, I got to use the restroom. So he got up and, and the, the attendant came to put gas in the car. And he got up, go to the restroom. And anyways, he got, you know, done. He got, came back out and he looked and he saw that gas attendant pumping and he was talking to his wife, having a conversation. And he looked a little closer and he realized this is a guy that his wife used to date a long time ago. How many, how many, how many, how many husbands like, uh-uh, <laughs> give me that hose. You know. And so he, he, you know, he, he's got, okay, you know, he walked up and they, they said goodbye, whatever, got in the car and they, they took off. The road was, the drive was a little quiet, a little quiet as they're driving along and and uh, finally, the guy is feeling pretty good about himself. He's thinking about, you know, here I am, this Fortune 500 company CEO, and here her ex-boyfriend is. He's just a gas attendant. And so he says to her, he goes, I bet I know what you're thinking. And how many of you guys know that's not something you say to your wife, right? He says, I bet I know what you're thinking. He goes, you're probably thinking, you're glad you married me and not that guy. And she goes, actually, that's not what I was thinking. She said, actually, what I was thinking was, if I married that guy, He'd be the CEO of a top 500 company, and you'd be a gas attendant. <laughs> Let's give that lady a hand. No. <laughs> Isn't it true we all struggle with pride? 
We all do. We all do. Pride is an internal, external, and eternal enemy. Pride certainly is an arch enemy of surrender. You cannot surrender to God when your heart is full of pride. Pride genders a self-focus. And when we focus on ourselves, surrender fades into the distance. Pride blinds us from the truth. Often we don't see it in ourselves. Pride hurts our relationships, especially our relationship with Jesus Christ. Pride does a lot of internal, external, and eternal harm, and often it's misdiagnosed. Chances are we are all struggling with pride in areas of our life. We don't even realize it. So thankful for members who listen to the message and and, 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 and it influences them. And one of our brand new members came up to me today and, and he said, Pastor, he said, I was thinking about your message. And he began to tell me how he saw pride in his life just in little ways. And, and oftentimes we, we miss those things. Marriages are often strained because of pride. Let me say that one more time. Marriages are often strained because of pride. Homes are often tense and unhappy because of pride. Workplace arguments, coworker issues, strife with other church members, Chalk it up, 99.9% of the time, it's pride. Oh, but that's not just the whole story. Pride does much more than that. There's much more sinister work at play with pride. Pride not only does these things, but pride keeps us from surrendering to God. Surrender says yes to God. Pride says no to God. Surrender says, not my will, but yours, God. And pride says, no, 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 what I want is the most important. Surrender says, you can have it all, Lord. You can have my life. And pride says, no, it's mine. I earned it. Surrender says, well, if the Bible says it, I will do it. If the Bible says to do this, I will do it. That's what surrender says and pride says. Well, if the Bible says it, I'll read it. I'll think about it. I'll pray about it and make a decision. That's not what God tells us to do. We're supposed to obey the Bible, not decide if we're going to obey the Bible. And so pride is the enemy of surrender. There is no more godless more sinister, more destructive spiritual force than pride. I believe if we were able to ask God a question today, God, what is it that you want from me? I believe if we were able to send the Lord a message and get a message in return, God, what do you want from our church today? It's 2021, and and here we are, God, in California. What do you want from your church? What do you want from us, your people? I believe with all my heart, God will return. I'm looking for blushing Christians, those who have bowed their haughty heads to me their holy God, those who would denounce their pride before my presence, which child of mine will examine the underwriting of his heart, who will leave behind their flesh-filled tenets to look full in the face of their pride. God, who has proclaimed his eternal word, says, I hate pride. What I believe God is looking for today and has always been looking for is spirit-filled men and spirit-filled women who cast down their pride at the feet of Jesus and surrender themselves wholly to his word and to his will and to lay it down. God is not looking for those who sacrifice. God who is not looking for those who raise their hand in praise. God is looking for those who bow their heart in surrender and say, not my will, but thine be done. God is not looking for Christians who flaunt their sin because of grace. God is looking for Christians who say, I hate my sin like Christ hates my, or God hates my sin. And I'm thankful for the grace of God that I can grow in his grace. But God is looking for the Christian who blushes. We live in a day where we no longer blush at sin. We no longer are sorry for who we are and our sin. Our pride doesn't allow it. Before we say anything more about our pride, let's talk about our example of pride we have the highest example of pride 
given to us in Scripture. Let me give you number one in your notes. We have the atrocious example of Satan. The atrocious example of Satan. May I say this morning that pride is a satanic force. Pride in you and pride in me is a satanic force. If you ever study the satanic church, which I don't recommend that you do, but if you ever did that, you will find that their basic tenets are all about pride. It's all about what they want and following their will. It has less to do about Satan than it does about self. Amen. And somebody saying amen, right? So. If you study scripture, you will find that the first sin was in fact not Adam and Eve eating the tree of the garden. That was mankind's first sin. But this is not the first sin we are told about in the universe. The first sin that is recorded in scripture is the sin of pride. Would you take your Bibles and go to the book of Isaiah in your Old Testament? Isaiah, it's one of the major prophets, not major because of the size of the book. Uh, excuse me, not major because of whatever, but major because of the size. So the major prophets are larger in, in chapter number and minor prophets are less in chapter number. And Isaiah is a larger book of the Bible. And so it's called a major prophet. Isaiah chapter number 14. I meant to say not major in importance, but in size. Isaiah chapter number 14, look at verse number 12. Notice what the writer here is talking about Satan. He says, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, thou which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said, notice this, in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt, what's the next word? My throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Verse 14, I will ascend to the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Pride is what motivated Satan's fall and what motivates his purpose today. Do you know what pride is? Pride is simply this. Anything I do or say that steals glory from God. Pride is anything that I do or anything that I say that steals glory to God. This is a great sin of pride. It isn't that we seem arrogant or haughty or that we're braggadocious or self-affirming. No, the reason for such a great sin is that pride takes from God what is rightfully His. All glory and praise to the Lamb that was slain, who has borne all my sins and has cleansed every stain. Hallelujah! Thine the glory. Let's try that again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Revive us again. You see, the all glory and all praise belongs to God. It all belongs to Him. Hey, listen, I grew up in church. I know, I know this, I know the drill. Uh, I, I've come to church my whole life. And so, uh, man, it's so busy. And, and boy, you just barely get your clothes on. You just barely find your shoes. Where's my toothbrush? Why does my son keep using my toothbrush? You know, you get, and so uh, you, get, you get dressed and you come dragging into church. And the first thing that we do when we get to church is we get mad because someone took our parking spot. All right. So our parking spot's not there. So we park in the dirt. We walk and we get our kids. And then, man, where's the check in person? How come the check-in, and we get our kids checked in, and we get to our seats, and the next thing we do is start looking around. Who's here? Where is so-and-so? They said, and we start looking around, and then we don't like the song. We don't like the song that was picked, and we, and we don't like the, the, you know, Brother Russell, man, he's such a good pianist. We don't like it. Just don't like it. Something wrong. He's too good. I don't like that screen image, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. And we sit, and we criticize, and we criticize others, and we are upset, and all of these things. And what we are doing when we come to church, and we're focused on us, and we're focused on others, and when we're focused on our parking spot, and we're focused on the air conditioning, is it steals glory from God. What are we supposed to do in church? Hallelujah, thine the glory. 
Hallelujah. Amen. All glory and praise belongs to Him. To Him. Boy, it would be good if we came to church and instead of thinking about all those things, just thought about Christ. Pride steals glory from God. No one in their right mind would steal glory from God. But this is exactly what Lucifer did. Lucifer is that great lunatic. Mad. Mad with pride. Can you imagine, church family, can you imagine as Satan stood before God and saw his glory and saw his majesty, he stood before his God and he said, I will be like you. Matter of fact, my throne will be above your throne. What an atrocity to stand before God. And that's exactly what he did. He lifted up his wing above God and said, look at what my wings are greater than you, God. He lifted up the pipes that God gave him. He said, my pipes are greater than you, God. He lifted up the wisdom and beauty that God had given him. He said, I am more beautiful and I will be more majestic than you, God. And he lifted himself up. He is created and yet he lifts himself up above his creator. But isn't that what we do? Isn't that the same temptation that we face? Are we not mere created beings? Flesh, bone, feeble, frail, and yet we are so proud. Can you imagine saying no to your creator, but we do it every day? Can you imagine telling your creator, my life isn't yours, it's mine. Every time we say no to God, we steal his glory. How is that? Because when we don't do what God wants us to do, when we don't live the way that God wants us to live and we keep it for yourself, we steal his glory because God wanted glory in your life. He wanted to do something through you. He wanted to glorify himself through you. And we said, no, it's mine. And God lost that glory. Every time we claim credit for our accomplishments, for our family, our wisdom, We steal his glory. Is not everything that we have, is not everything that we've been given, including the very air that we hold in our lungs right now, given from God? Is not the heart that beats in our chest held by the hand of a very God who keeps it beating every minute in time? Is not the solar system and the earth on its axis and rotating around the sun kept in time by a holy God? How is it that we say, no, God, you can't have my life? Oh, pride how it consumes us, it pulses through our veins like our blood pumped from a deceitful heart. Oh, the sin of pride. How can we escape it? Here's the good news today. We're not without hope. How many glad for hope? Amen. How many glad that the sun shines in the morning? How many glad for new mercies every day? How many glad for grace? Amen. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. How many are glad that there's grace for your pride? Because I'm glad too, because I'm like you, I'm a proud person and I don't want to be proud, but I am. It's just in me. It's just in you. But I'm so thankful for grace and I'm so thankful for this. Number two, we have an amazing example of surrender. An amazing example. See, Jesus Christ himself gave us this amazing example. Go back over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look back at verse 4. It says, look, not every man on his own things, but also the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul is trying to explain to this church, this is how Christ thought. This is the way that Christ was, who being in the form of God, even though he was God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, and even though he had all the all the power and all the the circumstance and pomp of God, even though he had all those things, he made of himself no reputation, but took on him a form of a servant. You see, when we uh, uh, relinquish pride in our life, there's a manifestation of that. We're going to talk about what that manifestation is, but we have an example of this. Take your Bibles and go to Mark chapter number 14 in your New Testament. The first book of the New Testament is Matthew, and then the next book is Mark. So Matthew, Mark. Look at Mark chapter number 14. And uh, we're going to look at verse 35. 
And of course, this here, uh, Mark 14, 35, is Jesus is in the garden and he's praying and he's getting ready, preparing himself to be crucified on the cross for you and for me. And so he's getting himself ready. He tells his disciples, could you not uh, pray an hour? And they keep falling asleep like men do. And he's trying to go over here. And so Jesus, it says in verse 35, he went a little further. He went forward a little and fell on the ground. And Jesus prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now, I don't know why Jesus prayed that. I don't know if he wanted more time uh, to work with his disciples or to see more people healed to come to Christ. I don't know. I don't know if he wanted it to pass from him because of the great pain that was about to come on his body. I don't know if he wanted it to pass from him because he knew his father would have to turn his back on his son because of the sin was laid upon him. Our sin, our iniquities were laid upon him. I don't know why he said that. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father. That word Abba almost gives the connotation of dad. Dad, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what, 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 not what I will, but thou wilt. What an amazing example of surrender, but what thou wilt. The creator of the universe allowed his own creation to kill him. I think about that story where the Roman soldiers, the Bible says, smote him on the face. And I think about that big, burly Roman soldier taking his fist that God created and slapped the face of his creator. Jesus allowed that. Isaiah tells us like the lamb, he opened not his mouth. He allowed it. He became obedient. What an example. You can't have my life, God. Uh, my life is too important. I have too many things to do. I'm too busy to serve you. I have too many. And we, we, we buck against God and, and we fight against God where Jesus allowed his will to be put second place and allowed God the Father's will to be put first. We would do well in our lives to take our pride and say, listen, uh, my life is not mine to control. I give you my heart and my soul. And we give God everything and we give him everything. Oh, the sin of pride. What an example we have in the Savior Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We have an atrocious example of pride. Satan, boy, he lifted himself up, but what an amazing example of surrender. How can you read the life of Christ and not realize how important surrender is? Well, we have an example also of great surrender. Why is it that we cannot surrender to God? Why do we, do we not have a sufficient example? Why is it that we cannot fully give God everything? Has he not given enough to us? May I ask you, dear brethren, today, what more does God need to do for you before you will surrender to him? What more does God need to do? Has he not done all? Has he not done enough? His death on the cross paid for our sin, including the sin of pride. Lastly today, not only we just see this wonderful example of surrender, something happens when we surrender our pride. Something happens in us. And this is what Paul is talking about back in Philippians there's a result. There's a manifestation. Something happens to us when we learn, uh, when, we, when we put away our pride and we learn to surrender to Christ. There is something that happens. Paul says this, look at verse 3 in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Pride, saying no to our pride isn't just moving up to the mountain somewhere and putting on an orange robe and sitting down and, you know, eating Cheerios in every day. It's just not doing anything. That's not putting away pride. No, putting away pride, there, something happens when we put away our pride. There's an exchange. Something happens. What happens? Well, we see that every man doesn't look on his own things, but on the things of others. We also have that mind in us that Christ had. Let me give you number three today. What happens 
when we put away our pride. Number three, well, we have an, abs- an absurd example of service. An absurd example of service. You say, what's so absurd about it? You'll read it here in just a moment. But what happens when Christians empty themselves of pride? What does that look like? What does that look like? Take your Bibles and go to John chapter 13. I want to give you one last illustration today, and then I'm going to close. John chapter number 13. Are you turning there? Chris, would you bring your chair up here? Would you come sit right here, Chris? And uh, I'm going to use Chris today. I asked him ahead of time. I said, I said, do you trust me? He said, what are you, what are you asking me right now? And so uh, come right up here, Chris. appreciate that. I didn't say that. And would you just have a seat right here, Chris? Let's go to John chapter number 13. And I want you to look at this. Christ shows us what it means to empty himself of all his pride. There's, there was no pride in Christ. But he shows us what a Christian looks like when we have no pride. Look at verse 1 of John 13. Now before the, pe- the feast, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come and he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them to the end. The supper being ended, the devil now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper, lay aside his garments, and he does something the disciples were not expecting. He took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith, wherewith he was girded. Would you take off your shoes and socks, brother? It's okay to laugh. Jesus took off his garments. Simon's thinking, what are you doing? Is it hot in here? What's going on? He laid his garments aside. He took out a, 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 a towel and he girded himself. And he gave us the most absurd example of servanthood you can find in any literature. He began to wash the disciples' feet. The Bible tells us he took a basin and he took a, a vessel of water and he poured it out. Now let's pretend now that Chris is Peter. This is Chris, by the way. Everyone say, hi, Chris. <laughs> he said, hi. <laughs> Chris is Peter. In this culture, in the Jewish culture, it wasn't weird to wash someone's feet. It was normal. It was normal to have your feet washed. In this culture, you, would, you wouldn't wear nice suede shoes with socks. You'd wear sandals. And so as you're walking throughout the day, you'd be walking, your feet, would, your feet of course, would be sweating because it's hot. And it'd be, it, you know, they didn't have Nike Air Jordans that breathed back then. It was just leather. And so the sweat and the dirt, and it would all be caked in their toes and their feet. And not only that, but you know what I'm talking about. They didn't have modern day plumbing back then. And so you have refuse of animals and refuse of human. They're walking through this all day. And what would happen is, is if a person came to another Jewish person's house, the host of the house uh, would, would invite them into their house. And the first thing that they would do is they would kick off their sandals at the door. And then there was a section right inside of the house where they would have their feet washed and they would be clean. And if the, if the host wanted the person to come in, it was a gracious visit. It would, they would offer to them to have their feet washed. And so they'd say, would you like your feet to be washed? Sure. And so he said, would you please sit down? And then they would send for one of the servants You see, Jesus washing the disciples' feet was not a weird thing. What was weird about it, what was different about it was the master never washed the servants' feet. Never, never. 
They would always go get the servant, the youngest servant, the lowest on the totem pole, the guy who the, was the greenhorn, the guy who just started. This guy, he'd, he's, he's the one, he got all the dirty jobs, the dirty work, and they would go get Tom. They would go get Tom. Where's Tom? No, I'm just kidding. They would go get Tom, and here he would come, and they would come in, and this guy, he, he, was, the, he was the lowest on, he got all the dirty jobs. I just used Tom out of the air. I'm sorry. I didn't mean there's somebody, I guess there's somebody in here, but, and so he would come to him, and then he would say, he would say to his servant, he said, would you wash his feet, please? And so the host of the house and the guests would stand here and they would talk. Hey, how, did you find the place okay? You know, did the, you know, and they would talk a little bit and they would have a conversation while the servant got down and washed his feet. But Jesus showed them something absurd. He took the bottom and he put it on the top. The greatest among you will be servant of all. We're so full of pride, we have it the wrong way around. We want to do this to people. And God says, God says, listen, no, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. For that's really knows this. He knows my heart. We're both pastors here. We are, we are your servants, right? We are your servants. We're not, we're nothing. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We're sinners. He's a bigger sinner than I am, but we're sinners. Thank you, because you can see it. But our, our, we're, we sometimes we're so full of pride, and we don't realize that, listen, the greatest among us will be the servant. And God, Jesus gave us this example. He got down, and he began to get the, the water in the rag. And Peter says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're not going to wash my feet. How many of you are like Peter? You would have said the same thing. No, no, no. I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus says, listen, I'm trying to teach you something here. I'm your servant. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, your feet are pretty clean, but. And then he takes his towel that he girded on his waist and he dries their feet. You see, Peter didn't want him to do this. <clears throat> do you know why Peter didn't want him to do it? Because he was full of pride. You and I, sometimes we're so full of pride, we neither want to wash people's feet nor have our feet washed. We, want to, we don't want anybody to help us. We don't want anybody. No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. No, I don't need to, you don't need to pray for me. I'm fine. Everything's fine. My family's good. We're so full of pride, we neither want to wash people's feet nor want our feet to be washed. Now, why did Jesus do this? Thank you, Chris. You can put your shoes back on. Take your time. Now, why did Jesus do this? Take your Bibles. Look at John chapter number 13. Look at verse 12. Everybody there, when you're there, say amen. Verse 12, he says, and after this, after he had washed their feet, he had taken his garments and was set down again. And he said, do you know what I've done to you guys? Do you know what the purpose of this whole illustration is? He says, you call me master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. Jesus didn't abdicate his authority over them. He said, yes, I am your master. That is the truth. Verse 14, he said, but if your Lord and master have washed your feet, would you read the next phrase with me? Ready to begin. Ye also ought to wash one another's feet. He said, if your master, your Lord, your creator, the person who's going to die, they don't know this yet, but who's going to die on the cross for your sins and pay for your sins, if I'm willing to take the time to wash your dirty feet, then you ought to be able, without pride in your heart, to wash one another's feet. All right, let's fast forward here to 2021. Are we willing to do those kinds of things for other people? Are we willing to have a heart for others that way? Are we willing to love? Thank you, Chris. Are, we, are you willing to love others and to help others in such a way that you uh, would do anything for them? You would uh, debase yourself to help someone? Or are you so proud? Or are you so proud that you don't want to touch someone else in that way? We see an absurd example of service. For us, in our culture, this is too far. For most of us, we would never even think about doing something like this. Brother Padillo told me after the first service, he goes, one time when he was a younger person, they went to a missionary Baptist church where they do actually practice foot washing. 
It's a good reason why you're an independent Baptist. But anyway, I'm just teasing. I'm just kidding. Just teasing. But he said it was the most, it was the most humbling thing he's ever experienced. He said they, they got down and there's all these pig farmers in the town that came and they were washing their feet. He said it was the most, it was the most interesting experience they ever had. And for, for most of us, this just doesn't really register with who we are and, and it doesn't register with where we're at. But it registered and it wasn't absurd to Jesus. Jesus, the creator of the universe, was trying to show you and me today as he kneeled down and as he wiped and washed the feet of these men, he gave us an absurdly powerful example of Christian humility. Unfortunately today, in most churches, it's not filled with surrendered souls who push away their pride. No, it's filled with strife. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3? Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But with lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Churches and homes and marriages and workplace, Facebook, all of these things are filled with so much pride. Why? Because pride always manifests itself in strife. Surrender always manifests itself in service. When you're full of pride, you want to argue with everybody. Well, you don't know what they said. It's pride. Come on, somebody help me now. We, they're wrong. They might be wrong. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 13, only by pride cometh contention. And so what we have are churches full of people fighting over the dumbest things. Not our church, please don't get me wrong. Well, there's churches all over America fighting over what color the carpet is and and what color this thing is and why don't we have this. And instead of washing each other's feet, we're worried about each other's hairstyles. And instead of washing each other's feet, we're worried about whether this guy wore a tie or not. And they're attacking each other. Churches are attacking each other. Didn't Christ say that the world will know that you're my disciple because you love one another? Even the world loves people that loves them back. Even the world wants to spend time with people that like the same things and enjoy the same things and do the same things. That is not what being a Christian is. No, being a Christian is having a humble spirit and a loving spirit towards somebody with filthy feet. We all have filthy feet, by the way. Can you imagine a church where every person is so devoid of self and so filled with Christ, so absurdly surrendered that they'd be willing to do anything? for another Christian, another person, another brother in Christ. Can you imagine such a place? It would be a place the world has never seen. Certainly there would be no more strife. Certainly sinners would stand in awe of the absurdity, the acts of generosity, our meekness and patience for one another. They would stand and wonder, how is it that they can love each other so much, even when they're so different? How is it that they can love each other so much, even though they hurt each other sometimes? How is it that they could do these things? And could you imagine the revival that would take place if God's people, for whom Christ died and gave his life, would put on the form of a servant? I'm not going to that church. Nobody said hi to me. How about you come to the church and you put on the form of a servant, not because of the church, but because of Christ? Well, I'm not going to that church. Nobody's nice to me. How about you go to the church and you put on the form of Christ and you become nice to everybody? How come we're doing things out of reciprocation for what is done to us when Christ did everything he could possibly do for us? We should do for him. Amen. Amen. Amen and amen. Only, if only, the church today would take on the spirit of servanthood. If only Christians today in mass, in mass, in other words, as a group in mass, if we would take on that spirit of servanthood, the example of Christ, if only, then maybe, then maybe our city would turn to God. I was praying the other day over here somewhere and I was asking God, God, would you send revival to our church? Would you send revival to our church? And God said, pray bigger than that. 
God, would you send revival to our city? Can you imagine if our city had revival? I'm talking about I'm talking about Christians in Del Webb and people in Del Webb. I'm talking about people over in Union Ranch. I'm talking about people down over off Northgate, that area all over the Woodward down in the new areas. I'm talking about Lathrop and Tracy. Can you imagine if a revival broke out in our area? Do you know how it would happen? It's right here. Christians being willing to wash each other's feet, being willing to love one another and put things aside and work together and serve Christ and serve him, not with the spirit of what will I get in return or how someone will treat me in return, but serving Christ out of a true heart for him, out of a true love for him because he has done everything for me. Can you imagine we would see great revival if churches across America would do this? Maybe, maybe America would turn back to God. I believe that Jesus is coming soon. Amen. I believe he's coming soon. I don't know when. Anybody who tells you they know when, they don't know. They don't know. The Bible says no man knows. I believe he's coming soon. I don't know when. It could be morning, night, or noon. But I know this. I would love to see a great revival before he comes back. Let me say, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see souls running down the aisle to Christ and, and getting saved and, and asking Jesus to save them. I'd love to see uh, people all up and down California coming to Christ, asking Jesus to save them. I'd love to see from the West Coast all the way to the East Coast. I'd love to see revival in our country again. How many would love to see that? We complain about our government and we complain about the laws and we complain about the decisions being made when it really falls back on us as Christians to be willing to surrender all, all. Oh, can you only imagine? We have an amazing example in Christ. He was willing to lay down his life. The creator of the universe was willing to die for you, for me. The same Jesus who was willing to wash the disciples' feet, listen, listen, is willing to wash your heart white as snow, white as snow. Can I ask you, why won't you follow him? What is your excuse for not following Christ? Has he not done enough dying on the cross? Has he not loved you enough? If you say he has done enough, then follow him. He has done all the work. Come to him today. Hell is a steep price to pay for waiting. Don't wait. Come to Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, don't wait. Don't wait. God loved you so much. He commended his love toward us. That means he demonstrated his love toward us while we were yet sinners. At our worst state, he died for us. The Bible tells us, Paul says, he says, the word is nigh unto you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That if thou shalt confess the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's not complicated. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, whether it was a Jew or a Greek, a good person, a bad person, this side of the tracks, that side of the tracks, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Don't follow Satan's example. I don't need God. I'll, don't follow his example. Don't let him steal God's glory from you and your life today. No, make your life fully his. Come to Christ. Can you imagine what would happen if you and I would crush our pride? Let me rephrase that. If you and I would allow Christ to crush our pride, to gird ourselves with humility and kneel before one another in service, by the way, as a matter of encouragement, I'll read you a couple more verses, and then I'm done. The Bible says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and things under the earth. There's going to come a day where there will be no more pride. My pride and your pride will be gone. Amen? It'll be gone. Because every tongue should, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's coming a day where the pride of man will no longer be able to resist him. We will all bow 
to that lovely name of Christ. Would you bow with me this morning and pray?